So a day-long retreat, like today's retreat, is a day of meditation practice. We're practicing mindfulness of breathing for the most part. Uh, The goal, if you will, of the practice of mindfulness of breathing is uh, to develop concentration, qualities of jhana, uh, focus, ease, pleasure, and equanimity. As we make our way along the path, uh, we uh, hit obstacles. So it's not a smooth path to the goal. Uh, We're going to come across roadblocks, obstacles. Things are going to get in the way. The things that get in the way, the Buddha called specifically with regard to concentration, and this path of developing these qualities of jhana, he referred to these obstacles as the hindrances, the five hindrances. And he said, you know, when you make this effort uh, in our meditation practice to develop concentration, you're you're going to come across these hindrances, these obstacles. Like any journey, there's going to be obstacles. And he spoke about the, uh, the five hindrances of desire, aversion, dullness, restlessness, and doubt. He also spoke about the two hindrances, uh, which is a a teaching that I really uh, more and more find uh, very pertinent for us, uh, specifically uh, to be mindful, he said, of the two hindrances uh, of dullness and or restlessness. So the dull mind, the sleepy mind, or the restless mind, the mind, sort of the flip side of dullness, the mind that's uh, churning out thoughts after thoughts after thoughts after thoughts, overactive thinking mind. So chances are today, uh, we all, I would pretty much wager, uh, came across these hindrances, maybe one or the other, sometimes both, we tend to gravitate in one direction, but that can change. So in my own practice, uh, so much of my own practice has been a process of learning to to meet these obstacles skillfully. Uh, It's not so much about not having the obstacles, It's about learning to meet the obstacles skillfully. In particular, these two hindrances of dullness and restlessness, in my case, largely dullness, uh, both of these hindrances uh, tend to arise when we're developing concentration, seeking to develop concentration and practicing meditation, because there are states we go into when we don't want to be present. There are states that are rooted in delusion. Uh, So as we're making this effort to be present in our meditation, the effort that we make to be present on a day-long retreat, on a retreat, is really a great effort, a noble effort uh, to be present. uh, And uh, the mind is going to throw up these obstacles, uh, these defenses, if you will, uh, that we have uh, to being present so, uh, you know, in my daily practice, uh, I would 
struggle, and the operative word here is struggle with dullness, and then I'd do day-long retreats, and I'd really struggle because the hindrance would be even stronger because I'd be making even more of an effort to to be present. And then on longer retreats, residential retreats, uh, the struggle would be even greater uh, because I was making even more of an effort to be present. So uh, there was this great striving and fighting to overcome the hindrances. Uh, It was like a battle that I was in. And, of course, there was a lot of aversion. You know, the struggle was informed by a lot of aversion, aversion to the hindrances, aversion to uh, the way that I was practicing, aversion to the practice, and and then, of course, judgment about myself as a meditator and what I was doing and how the practice was going, and then doubt in myself and the practice. And... uh, It was such a struggle for me. I was engaged in such a struggle to overcome the hindrances, uh, this battle that I was in with the hindrances, particularly the two hindrances, particularly for me, dullness. Now, this really shifted for me at a certain point in my practice. Uh, It shifted for me when, uh, at a certain point, I... Uh, I decided that uh, what I needed to do was not so much uh, try to overcome the hindrances, but try to learn something, you know, make it a learning experience. You know? So my practice up until then had been trying to accomplish something, uh, accomplish concentration, accomplish the overcoming of the hindrances, and at some point it shifted to about learning something. So shifting from trying to accomplish something to learn something. So as I, as I began to, you know, because it made just all this effort, I've got to get past this hindrance. I've got to get past this hindrance. I've got I've to do what I can do, you know, to be present. Uh, you know, and then I started to ask, well, what is there to learn here? You know, well, what is there to learn here? And that's when things really started to shift. And that's when I really started to learn, even though I had heard this before, you know, learning happens when we see things for ourselves as they're happening. I really started to learn and understand that, you know, the hindrances that I was coming up against and struggling to overcome were, in fact, ways that I was defending myself against being present. I began to understand that. And, 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 as I, and as I began to develop this understanding, it all started to make sense. Of course I don't want to be present. You know, all my life I've strived to, get out, strived to get out of the present moment and not to be present. You know, these weren't things that I thought about, but they all became very clear how uh, in my life uh, I had always been very unhappy with the present moment and always wanted to be somewhere else. You know, it began as, as a child. And again, these aren't things I thought about or analyzed, but these are things that I came to understand and see through my, the way that I was relating to the hindrances and uh, this difficulty that I was having being present. You know, and, and it all started to make sense. You know, and uh, there was this uh, 
understanding of this lifetime of uh, seeking not to be present from the time uh, when I was a kid and you know I, I, it was a very difficult situation you know as I've talked about a little bit over the years you know my father was very abusive physically uh, emotionally verbally it was a different if it was a difficult uh, childhood let's put it that way and uh, you know, as a kid, I just wanted to be out of the house. You know, I liked going to school because that was a place where I felt safe, for one thing. It was the one place where I felt kind of safe because it was, it was dangerous to be in my house. Uh, so I liked going to school. I also tried to do really well in school so that I could get out of the house once it was time to graduate high school and, and, and go off to college. And, and be out of the house. And it was, you know, the first 18 years of my life, all I could think about was uh, getting out of the house and getting off to college and getting away from where I was. Uh, but much of my life, you know, I mean, that was, that was just part of the beginning of a process of, of not wanting to be where I was and not wanting to be present. Uh, I spent many years uh, engaged in a lot of activities that were really you know, designed to take me out of the present, you know, drinking and taking lots of drugs and uh, you know, doing these things to, uh, to remove myself from where I was. And I always had a sense that, or what I always felt was that I wanted to be somewhere else than where I was. So, uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, we're coming in meditation into the present moment. We're making an effort to come into the present moment, which really means what? Come to the body, come to the experience that's of the body and mind right now in this moment. And of course, this experience of the body and the mind was just fraught with pain. You know, it was a lifetime of pain, a storehouse of pain, uh, the present moment. You know, and that's 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 how I uh, that's how I uh, perceived and understood the present moment was was being so painful, so painful to be in this body. So as I. Uh, you know, moved and shifted from, I've got to try to be present and I've got to try to stay awake, you know? Think about that. I mean, think about that. Here's this guy trying to stay awake and trying to be present and, and you know, and, and I, that's the last thing that I want to do and I'm terrified of the present moment and I associate the present moment with all these things that are terrible. So, you know, and, 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 and it's kind of forcing myself to want to be present by, you know, standing up, you know, in the meditation. You know, I've got to be present, you know, and, and trying to keep my eyes open, you know, and doing all these things, you know, uh, but not really understanding why, what was going on there and, and, and how difficult it was to be present, you know. And all that really started to become clear to me as I just started to look at the meditation more as a learning experience. And then there started to be some compassion for myself as somebody who, it was really hard to want to be present. It was really hard to want to be present. It was really hard to make this journey to the present moment, understandably, understandably. 
you know, there I was, you know, kind of cracking the whip and trying to be present. And, you know, this was something so hard. And this shift that I began to make, you know, to have more compassion for myself and how difficult this was. And this was the last thing I was doing in my meditation was having, I was judging myself and aversive to myself because why can't you stay awake and why can't you be present? You know? And the shift, as that shift began to happen towards wisdom, there was compassion for how difficult it was to be present. And there was acceptance. I started to have acceptance. You know, acceptance of what is, what acceptance of my experience of pain and how difficult it was to come to the present moment. Acceptance of where I was on this journey. It's like I wanted to be you know, way down the road, you know, and I wasn't anywhere near being way down the road in terms of being present. It was going to be a long, difficult journey to the present moment, to the body, to the truth. You know? And I had to accept that. I had to accept that. And we come to meditation and we think, oh, I'm going to be present, you know. It's like, you know, if you're like me, that's a long, difficult journey to being present, to being really present, to being really, truly in the body. And once I came to understand that, you know, uh, you know, I was able to have acceptance of where I was and compassion for where I was. I was also able to have patience, you know, patience, you know, this deep patience. You know, this is going to take a while, man. You know, you've been, all your life, you've been going, trying to escape the present moment. All your life. I mean, I started this practice when I got sober, you know. You know, in 1990s when I started this practice, you know, at the time I got sober. So it's, you know, it's over 30 years now, but that's been a journey. You know, that's been a journey. Up until that point, I was doing everything that I could possibly do to try to get out of the present moment every day. You know, now all of a sudden I'm going to get on the cushion and I'm going to be present. It's a long, difficult journey. So I had to learn compassion and acceptance and patience. Now this is why patience is one of the paramis. You know, it's one of the qualities you know that we have to develop if we're going to if we're going to find happiness in this life. I had to develop this incredible patience. And patience, like all the paramis, is rooted in compassion. You know, it's a quality that's rooted in compassion. I had to have patience. You know, man, it's going to take a while before you're able to really and truly be present. So, you know, as I developed these qualities, of course, then there was a gradual abandoning of the hindrances. You know, that's like, you know, you have to be, you know, be careful of your ulterior motives, but as, as I began to make it more of a learning experience, you know, then the hindrances, I began to abandon them little by slowly. So instead of fighting, instead of fighting the hindrances, uh, developing acceptance and compassion and patience, you know, uh, you know, as there's acceptance, equanimity, and patience, then we begin to start to develop wisdom. You know, then wisdom really starts to develop the wisdom that is ultimately going to enable us to abandon the hindrance. We can understand then the drawbacks because ultimately the hindrances 
aren't going to be abandoned if you stand up, <laughs> you know, or if you try to pry your eyes open, you know, or scare yourself into the fact that, you know, I'm going to die, I've got to stay awake, you know. Ultimately, they're going to be abandoned through wisdom, you know. You know, we understand the drawbacks of the hindrance. We understand that it is taking us from the present moment. It's taking us from the body and it's taking us from the ability to develop concentration, which is going to lead us to the, to the heart and to understanding what we need to do in this life to be happy. You know, so, so much of the key to abandoning the hindrance for me was developing acceptance for the hindrance, hindrances, the acceptance for the dullness or the restless, having patience, and out of that, you know, wisdom came and compassion came. So there was the wisdom of understanding the drawbacks in the hindrance and the compassion uh, that really, ultimately, you know, that wisdom and that compassion, that self-love is what's going to keep the eyes open and keep us in the present moment, not the fighting and the trying, right? And that's what I had to learn. That's what I had to learn. That was, that was, that was sort of like my first 20 years of meditation was learned, was getting to the point where I learned that. It was where I got to the point where I learned that. You know, it's the same thing with developing a pleasant abiding in the meditation, you know. You know, we might try really hard to develop a pleasant abiding, you know, but ultimately it comes from acceptance with where we're at and compassion for ourselves. You know, we develop a pleasant abiding in the body. We come to the body instead of fighting and trying and let me do this scan and let me do that scan and, you know, let me do this and that and the other thing. Well, those things are good, you know, and there's nothing wrong with standing up or opening your eyes. It's kind of how you do it, right? So we like to think of this practice of meditation as not a practice like you're coming here today, a practice in which you're trying to accomplish something, but what, in which you're trying to learn something. It's a learning experience. So, you know, when we're struggling, it's, it's a good way to just make a simple shift is, you know, what is there to learn here? Or how can this be a learning experience? Oh, I came to the retreat today. I felt three breaths in seven hours. Well, how can this be a learning experience? You might learn something that's going to have a much more profound effect on your meditation and on your life if you felt every breath and every meditation, which, of course, is never going to happen, you know? but you see what I'm saying. Yeah. So we begin to look more at our practice as a learning experience. What is there to learn? You know, our tendency is to not to think of meditation or life as a learning experience, but more as something where we want to get results. I want to get results. You know, and when we hit difficulty and obstacle and obstacles in meditation in life, we fight. You know, we try to fight through. You know, we're aversive, uh, and we try to use our to those obstacles, and we try to use sheer effort and will, or we try to fix what the problem is. So what we learn to do is to shift from, you know, how can I fight this problem? this obstacle, if it's a hindrance or anything else in meditation or in life, how can I fix it? 
we try to shift from this aversive way of relating to it or this judgmental way of relating to it to you know, how can I make this a learning experience? What is there to learn here? So inclining and asking these kinds of questions to our innate wisdom. So instead of trying to accomplish something, try to understand our experience by asking questions and inclining to the heart and our innate wisdom. We were talking about this in some of the classes recently, and uh, I was talking about the metaphor, as I talked about earlier this morning, of the cook, right? Yeah. Uh, the cook who, uh, who uh, you know, tries different things, tries different things uh, to, uh, to make the soup or whatever she's making. But uh, in that effort, you know, the the good cook, the good chef, the really good chef, uh, uh, you know, it's a process that's like a learning experience. It's not just like I'm going to follow this recipe and make something really good, right? A really good cook or a really good chef moves beyond the recipe, you know? It's like if it was only about the recipe, we could all be master chefs, right? You know, you want to be a good cook, you got to be a good chef. A good chef, you have to be able to go beyond the recipe. You know, things aren't always going to go the way they go. You know, in the Buddhist 16 steps for Anapanasate. Yeah. So, you know, if you use the metaphor of the cook, you know, the cook might try different things, you know. But ultimately, what makes a good cook is some kind of intuitive sense of what's going to make a good recipe, right? You know what's what's going to make that soup really good. You know, you, you know, a good a good chef. Uh, you know, this you know relies on something that transcends just looking in the book or saying, well, I should do this, I should do that. You know, there's an intuitive sense or a sense of ingenuity, right? This is what we're learning to develop. You know, in the meditation by learning to make the meditation a learning experience, right? We were talking about this in class, and uh, you know, uh, there was a chef in the class. And some of you know who the chef was. I asked her if I could mention her, although I, I won't mention her by name, I don't think, but you, I asked her if it was okay if I mentioned her in this talk. And we were talking about this in the class, and I said, am I right about that? You know, is this, am, I, am I saying this metaphor correctly? You know, that, you know, that a good chef has an intuitive sense of what's gonna make the meal good. You know, you just don't follow a recipe or think about it. You know, you you, you develop an, an understanding, you know, and you're flexible and you, you're able to try different things, you know, and, and uh, uh, you're, you're able to improvise. And she said, yeah, she goes, you know, and she goes, you have to learn to improvise, you know, you know and, 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 and of course a good chef has that uh, intuitive ability to be able to do that. And she said, you know, and sometimes you don't have all the ingredients that you need, you know, but you make do with what you have. You know, you do the best you can with what you've got. You know, and to me that really sums up Dharma practice, right? We may not have all the ingredients, you know, we do the best with what we've got. 
we do the best with what we've got. You know, we came here today with this body. You know, nobody came here with a perfect body. The body wasn't perfect during the day. You did the best with what you had. You did the best with what you had. Things went wrong. You did the best with what you had. You found a way to improvise. Came here with a certain mind. Nobody came here with a perfect mind. No matter how many day-long retreats you go to, you're never going to come to the retreat with a perfect body or a perfect mind. Came here with a certain mind today. There was hindrances in the mind. Maybe it was dullness. Maybe it was restlessness. Maybe it was agitation. Whatever it was, it was bothering you. You, know, you did the best with what you had. You did the best with what you had. It's not about coming here with a perfect body and a perfect mind. It's about doing the best with what we have. It's about doing the best with what we have. And we think, well, I'll have a really good retreat when my mind is a certain way and my body is a certain way, when I have the perfect mind or the near-perfect mind or the near-perfect body. It's not going to be, that's not what's going to lead you to happiness. What's going to lead you to happiness is when you learn to meet your experience the way that it is and do the best with what you have in that moment and on that day in meditation and in life. And when you can do that, there's a joy in that. There's such a great joy in that. You know, there's a much greater joy in doing the best with what you have than having a perfect meditation or a perfect experience. I mean, in part because you're learning to incline to you know, your goodness and your capacity for understanding your innate wisdom. You're understanding that in doing the best with what you have with this body and this mind in any moment, I mean, that's all you've got to do. That's all you've got to do in this practice is do the best with what you have. Not, and, 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 and to try to let go of wanting what you don't have. You know? When you're able to do that, you know, there's a joy in that. We're imperfect human beings. You know, that's, or that's a redundancy. Human beings are imperfect. The human realm is imperfect. It's contingent. It's conditioned. It's imperfect. You know, we don't have everything that we wish we would have in terms of the body and the mind and everything else. But what we have is good enough. What we have is good enough. So our practice is a practice of learning to bow to what we have and what we are in any moment and not to try to be something else. And that was the shift with me, with the hindrances. It's like, this is what I got. You know, this is what I got right now. I got a mind that doesn't want to be present, that just wants to go to sleep, that for the last 35 years, 40 years, whatever, help, you know, it hasn't wanted to be present. This is what I got. You know, can I bow to that? And I do the best I can with what I've got. This is our practice, not to want what we don't have, but to accept what we have and what we are and have gratitude for what we've got. Yeah, we're pretty lucky with what we've got. You've got this life. You've got this body. 
You've got this mind and this heart. This is why this is a fortunate birth. This is considered a fortunate birth to be a human being. You've got this mind and this heart. You've got everything that you've got and more to be happy. Our problem is we don't realize that and we want something that we don't have or we think we don't have what we need. So can we have compassion for ourselves in terms of our imperfections you know, and our struggles and the mistakes we make and our weaknesses in meditation and in life? And can we under, come to understand, you know, because it is hard, it's difficult. You know? And can we understand well, what we have is good enough? Can we have appreciation for what we have? And that we don't have to get something that we haven't got in terms of this body and this mind. We don't have to be someone else. We don't have to be someone else. We spend, you know, this is, this is, this is, you know, when we're, when we're wanting what we, I mean, this is that Buddhist classic definition of, of clinging, right? Uh, you know, wanting what we don't have and not wanting what we have, being joined with what we find displeasing, you know? How many times today were you joined with what you find displeasing and being separated with what you find pleasing, you know, lamenting over that, right? So, you know, when we cling, uh, that clinging leads to, uh, you know, self-fabrication. You know, you know, there's many selves that we fabricate, you know? You know, and there are all these ideas of who we think we should be or who we think we are, uh, in terms of selves that we don't want to be. You know, so there's you know the good meditator and the bad meditator. You know, you know and there's all the other selves that we create. You know, these, these, these fabrications, they're not real. They're not who you are. You know, there you know, are perceptions and thoughts about who you are and, 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 and selves that you're trying to create in the mind that don't even exist. I mean, this is what we're doing. You know, so many of these fabrications, you know, these creations, you know, you know, they're just ways, you know, we're just trying to be somebody, right? Or not be somebody. So we don't have to be someone else. You know? I mean, I don't, I don't know that we you know, necessarily want, I want to be that person or I want to be that, you know, but we have these, these, these images of what we want to be as a meditator, right? Good meditator. Dhamma student, awakened being, most generous person in the room, you know, quietest one, best posture, whatever, you know, you have, we all have these images of what we want to, you know, these, 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 these fabrications that we create. You don't have to be anybody. You don't have to be someone. You know, and, you know, and, and, and in the Dharma, Within the Buddhist teachings, it's not a practice in which we're trying to be a perfect being. You know, really, there is no paradigm being. There's no God. There's no God in the Dharma. You know, and you know, there's the Buddha as you know, kind of a role model. The Buddha was really more of a teacher. You know, 
but we don't have to be the Buddha or a Buddha. You know, there used to be this saying, you know, you know, when, when the Dharma was starting to get passed on a lot in the West, you know, and people were trying to say, you know, it's not about being a Buddhist. You're not about being a Buddhist. Don't be a Buddhist, be a Buddha. I would say, screw that. You don't have to be a Buddha. I'd rather you be a Buddhist than a Buddha. See, a real Buddhist doesn't want to be a Buddha. A Buddha, real Buddhist just wants to be who they are. You know, that's what really being a Buddhist is. You, know? you don't have to be a Buddha. You don't have to be the Buddha. You know, what do they say in Zen? You know, if you see the Buddha on the street, kill him. You know? Our practice is not about being a Buddha or being you know, some image that we're creating in our mind of who we think we should be or not being this image in this mind that we're fabricating who we think we are. It's about being who we are. This body and this mind. Our practice is a practice of being who we are. You know, in the moment, you know. You know, we're contingent beings, you know, we're this process you know, this ongoing process. Every experience that each of us has had has brought us to this moment, and every all the experiences that each one of us have had have been infinitely different that have brought us to this moment and in our lives. So we're all infinitely different and unique. That's who you should be. That's who you should be. Everybody here is completely different. Everybody's here. Every meditation that everybody had today was completely different than every other meditation that anybody here ever had. Everybody's here's life is completely different than anybody else's life has ever been. And just go with that. That's what you've got. You know, be who you are. Be who you are. Your contingency is your strength. Your impermanence is your strength. Your difference is your strength. I wanted to be a great meditator. You know, I didn't want to be the guy falling asleep, you know, and I wanted to be, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, anybody than who, than who I was, you know. You know and, and maybe that's the next 20 years of my meditation. It's like, it's okay to be who you are, damn it. You know, it's okay. It's okay. All these things that have happened and everything that you've learned and done, you know, has brought you to this moment, you know, and everybody's karma is, is uniquely different. You know, we're all this unfolding, just this unfolding. It's like nature. It's like everything in nature is in a process of unfolding and it's different. You know, we perceive our contingency and our difference, you know, as a weakness, just like I perceive the fact of the way that I was meditating with those hindrances is a weakness. Yeah. You know, we perceive the way our practice is, you know, because it's our practice and this body and mind is a weakness. And if I could be somewhere and somebody else, you know, and in life that's how we think about ourselves. But it's really our strength. You know, on the retreat in April, I talked a lot about finding your rhythm. You know. And, 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 you know, and one of the, and I, and thinking about that, you know, and I think that's a good teaching, but I would take it to another level. It's like, it's not like, it's finding your rhythm. It's not like finding somebody else's rhythm. It's not like finding the Buddha's rhythm. You don't have to find the rhythm of the person sitting next to you because they look like the person who's really got it together. You know, find your rhythm. Everybody's rhythm is different. 
everybody's rhythm is different. Our practice is about finding our rhythm and being in tune with that. Because I think we think, you know, like being in tune is being in tune with some uh, greater, something that's greater than ourselves, you know, but it's really being in tune with your truth, you know, not trying to be the Buddha, trying to be yourself. So, you know, the Buddha points the way, the Buddha teaches skills so that we can make our way, so that we can be ourselves. He's teaching us skills not so that we can be like him. He's teaching us skills so that we can be ourselves. Of course, there's basic guidelines that we follow. You know, when the Buddha went to the Kalamas and the Buddha and the Kalamas said, Who should we emulate? Who should we follow? You know, the Buddha said, Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or the thought. This contemplative is a teach our teacher. When you know for yourself that these qualities are skillful, then you should enter and remain in them. And then, of course, he said, you know, the guidelines for qualities that are skillful, that are their qualities that are informed by love and compassion and appreciation and equanimity. So we learn to be in tune, you know, to be in tune with those qualities. You know, so our unfolding is easeful. You know, it's easeful. You know, our unfolding is easeful when it's informed by love and compassion and acceptance. So like, you know, I had those hindrances and I was dealing with them with aversion and wanting to be the best meditator and not wanting to be the meditator that I was once I could have acceptance and compassion and patience. You know, then there was a sense of ease in my meditation. You know, then the concentration really started to unfold, right? I wasn't fighting anymore. I was in tune. I was in tune. I was in tune, you know, in that quality of acceptance of who I was. You know, I was in tune with who I was. There was an acceptance of who I was and compassion for myself. So the Buddha said, be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. The Dhamma is your guide. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be who you are and love others. Can't love others until you are who you are. Can't love others, you know, you know, as the great lover, you know, or the great generous person. You you can love others when you're who you are, when you're able to be who you are. So be who you are and love others. You know, the message of this talk and really the message of the path is, you know, what you've got is all you've got. What you've got is what you've got. You've got this body and this mind and it's good enough. It's good enough. Right now in this moment, it's good enough. And it's joyful when we can open up to who we are. One last thing and I'll end with this and I know I'm going over a little bit. about this journey, and this is really important, so I want to just take a minute or two to talk about this and maybe to be continued, you know, but this unfolding of who we are is a work in progress. 
because this is really important to understand. It's a work in progress, and it will always be a work in progress, and we're not going to finish the job. The job is never finished. You know? We're not going to get to the end of the journey. When we leave this life, there's going to be unfinished business. There's going to be, and that's the way it is. That's the way it is. We're not going to get to the place where everything is perfect and we've done all we could. The Buddha didn't get to that place. The Buddha didn't get to that place. There were still beings that he could have taught. Right up until the end, he was looking for students to teach. You know, when he sat in front of the group for the last time, you know, one of the last things he said was, uh, uh, is there anybody here who doesn't understand what I've been teaching? You know, and he asked three times, right? Because he was still like, I don't know if I've got it, got it. You know, and then he said, look, maybe you guys don't want to say it you know, in the group. Whisper it in Ananda's ear if you don't understand it. You know, of course, nobody did it. So the Buddha said, well, good, I'm glad to see. And then he said, continue on, drive on, continue to be heedful. Continue to be heedful. The work is never done. We're never going to get to this place you know, where it's finished. You know, I just, I've been thinking about this lately a lot because you know, as I'm getting a little bit older and you know, pretty soon I'm moving into my 70th year. You know, so just, I'm probably gonna be hell during that year, I think, just you know, as I, as I, as I you know, a whole year of like my, my tour of moving towards 70. Uh, you know, but you know, these, a lot of these thoughts come up. I haven't accomplished all I want to accomplish. There's so many more things that I want to do, and I'm not going to get to do them. And all the books I'm not going to get to read, and places I'm not going to get to go, and things that I'm not going to get to do. You know, and you know, and there's been, you know, some struggle around that. You know, and then when I'm able to accept that, there's a great joy. You know, there's a great joy and a great happiness in this life. You know, in this ceaseless unfolding. And it's good, it's good enough. This life, the way it is, is good enough. Uh, 